0: This is Red Pub Pod, Pod. a podcast from Red Hot Publications.
1: Red
2: Pub Pod, Red Pub Pod.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening out there in podcast land. This is Robert Knipe, along with Patty Thompson and Richard Eller, and this is Red Pub Pod. So cue the theme music. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are pleased to have in our midst Dr. C. L. Willis, Cecil Willis, the author of a book called Hillbilly Odyssey, Resilience in a Small Mountain Mill Town. Dr. Willis is a native of Canton, North Carolina, professor emeritus of sociology and criminology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, Previous publications were scholarly articles in social science journals, but after retiring from uh, UNC Wilmington, he's moved back to his beloved mountains, lives with his daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren in Alexander County, North Carolina. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Willis. Thank you.
3: It's Alexander... City, Alexander, I guess, North North Yeah, yeah, but it's an out, it's outside of Weaverville and Asheville. Well, welcome to the yeah. Plush Welded Studios
2: of Red Hawk Publications. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny when when I heard that you were from Alexander
3: Alexander it's a community yeah an an incorporated community but it's near Weaverville about 15 minutes from Weaverville
2: and not knowing that there was an Alexander city if you will I I remember asking you well just come on over and pick your books up because we live near Alexander County and I got him a little confused. So I'm like, so, yeah, it's only so, going to be a 15 or 20-minute drive. And he yeah. was so sweet. He's like, yeah, I'll come over. And then I realized, oh, this is not close.
1: Then we got to figure out now who's responsible for the typo in the about the author that we're going to have to fix. <laughs> Something just happened to my audio. That's weird. Is it all right? Okay. All right. Anyway, um, I want to start off the questioning here with... Um, I'm just very interested in in the fact when you and I talked about this mm-hmm. earlier and when, you know, you talked to Patty about it, we, we, we mentioned this book, uh, another book with hillbilly in the title mm-hmm. that also has the word elegy in the title. And it, this is your kind of response to mm-hmm. that, to that book?
3: Yes, it is. I had... Uh... You know, when Hibberley Elegy first came out, it was presented in, you know, the national media, uh, in reviews and so forth, as, you know, this is the quintessential statement, uh, authentic portrayal of Appalachian people. And having been from Appalachia myself and going up there, and after reading it, I realized that, well, this is not the you know, an accurate portrayal of, uh, of my experiences uh, in Appalachia. And uh, it was distorted, he, he was... Uh, and it presented the Appalachian people in very stereotypical ways, I think, you know, that is sort of the popular view of people, and uh, of people that are often referred to as, you know, hillbillies. And, and, so uh, his personal story to me was very, you know, I guess compelling, you might call it. But uh, he was, you know, he, he reinforced the story, you know, the, the, the Appalachian people are, are backward or, you know, uh, s- slow thinking, uh, lazy, you know, susceptible uh, to um, you know, substance abuse. You know, that's their fault. He was blaming them and their culture for all the problems that uh, that were, you know, uh, found in in the Appalachian area. So I was, you know, uh, wasn't wasn't uh, I guess happy with his portrayal. And I'd already done a lot of, you know, even myself, uh, background reading and so forth about the problems in Appalachia and so forth, and. And I just thought he just presented a distorted view. And, and the thing is, it was in the national media as, and, as something that was real. And, you know, there, are, there is substance abuse in Appalachia. There is poverty. Uh, you know, there are well, There's problems.
1: substance abuse right down the street from where we sit right now, and mm-hmm. poverty from,
3: you know, right here in the area. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, someone said that he engaged in poverty shaming because he criticized how, the people's lifestyles, you know, how they ate, you know. They had cinnamon rolls for breakfast and Taco Bell for lunch and McDonald's for supper, you know. what like They didn't really know about nutrition. They didn't care about uh, health issues and so forth. And uh, I grew up in Appalachia and I grew up on a farm. And, you know, we had... Uh, we had—you might call—organic food before it was cool. You know, we grew. <laughs> you know, we grew our own food. You know, we we had uh, you know garden and vegetables and you know and fresh and chicken and chicken, yeah, chicken. You know, uh, chicken lay an egg and then when a chicken no longer laid an egg, it was a spent chicken, so it was on the Sunday dinner table. You know, and right. so that was. That was our my experience, you know. We, you know, our people were very, you know, self-reliant. You know, we lived in a self-sustaining. I lived in kind of was almost a self-sustaining household when I was growing up and for early years. And so, you know, this 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 is not, uh, you know, my experience. And and so um, that's the reason I used the title, you know, in this when I was writing this is a heavily odyssey. You know, this is. You know, obviously, this was a type of journey and so forth, this self-discovery in a lot of ways, and it it is, it's my journal. In many ways, it's my story of my own self-discovery, of accepting where I came from, and accepting uh, who I am, and who my family was, and my you know, uh, neighbors were and so forth. And so that's, you know, that's the origin of that. And I know some people may look at that and think, well, you know, you're just doing another elegy, and I'm not, you know. Well,
1: there's a a big difference. I made a, uh, I did a little Googling a while ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the name of your book is Hillbilly Odyssey, and the uh, definition of an odyssey is a long wandering voyage Mm -hmm. usually marked by many changes of fortune. Mm-hmm. Whereas an elegy is a poem of sorrow or lamentation, mm-hmm. so the difference between an Odyssey and an elegy. There's a hopefulness in an, od- in an Odyssey, and you write about those hopeful things in the book. That uh, you know, just like you've said, you mm-hmm. know, we were we were um, uh, organic before organic was cool, mm-hmm. and these kind of things. And there's there's some stuff to be pushed there. Uh, Patty, you you mentioned something to me this morning that you wanted to ask dr willis
2: well as i mentioned just a little prior to the podcast when i met dr willis in the hallway i was very happy to read this book because for someone from the northeast Mm -hmm. not being as familiar with mountain lifestyle um upbringing Mm -hmm. it was really educational for me Mm -hmm. and to be honest with you when i thought about most folks living in Appalachia and having worked with some folks from West Virginia, I typically think about coal mining. Mm. And I think when you start thinking about Canton, and you know it's it's a paper mill. you know, it, it, Instead of everybody going off to the, the coal mines, you've got everybody going to a paper mill. It's a little bit different. And it is a, stor- um, what do they call it, a company town? You know, Canton, the, the history of it, and at least the way you portray what paper meant to this town Um everybody more or less lived for that company. Mm -hmm. The various transitions of the paper company, which we all know as of 2023, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's anymore. Um, It's it's no longer there. So again, I want to just share with our listeners and folks who may want to read this book, it is a different way of life, but you accurately portrayed it and I could visualize what it must have been like at a simpler time, very self-reliant, self-efficient. You had parents that Instilled a lot of, a lot of um, good moral values upbringing. You had teachers that cared Work ethic. Work ethic. Work ethic. Um, You know, the the importance of of taking care of your land and taking care of, of the new home that you your dad created. It's like, it it really does create a lovely story of a lovely time, and and it is important for folks to realize this is a memoir, mm. you, you know. Um, the difference between an elegy and an odyssey. I initially, when we start talking to folks in podcasts, we ask them about their backgrounds. Well, I can't ask you about your background. Your book is your background. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a little different, mm-hmm. you know. Um, this is your odyssey. This is your journey, and you, you go on to not only leave a small town where a lot of folks don't, but you've gone on at, with with several degrees behind your belt, and you've returned to the mountains. So mm-hmm. I, your your story. Present something a little different from what we normally do when we interview a poet or well, a nonfiction. This it's and, it's interesting to to talk to somebody who's writing a memoir.
1: And that's one of the reasons why I looked up those two different words mm-hmm. is because you know one is is very you know pessimistic, uh, while the word odyssey is is very promising. It's very optimistic, and we've done books. Uh, I see Richard. We've done furniture. Mills books. We've done uh, weaving out of uh, Rhodes. What other factory? We've done the the Henry River Mill Village. Yeah, yeah. we did that.
0: And we're working right now on doing more furniture workers' stories. Right. So, um, yeah, we've covered a lot of what it means to grow up and be part of the. Industrial community of Western North Carolina.
1: Yeah, and I think Dr. Willis's book reflects the same values and the same descriptions of what we've had in those other books. So, which book is the outlier? Which book is the book that doesn't fit uh, that that schedule? It has to be Mr. Vance's book because it's the only one that uh, disparages your, you know disparages your neighbor and and stereotype, and these kind of things. So. But he
2: also didn't grow up there, and I think that's important for folks to know. If I'm not mistaken, J.D. Vance, he just spent his summers there, right? I mean, uh, okay. he wasn't brought up
3: there. No, he was he was brought up in, I think, Southern Ohio somewhere, yeah. and where his grandparents, grandparents uh, I mean, moved to, yeah. uh, out of West, uh, no, out of Kentucky. And, uh, you know, in the in the Appalachian area, very Appalachian area of Kentucky. And he only visited there uh, in the summer, you know, and occasionally. And the family, his family down there, uh, was primarily what you might call a dysfunctional family. I mean, truly, I mean, all families have some dysfunction in them, I would think. But, you know, truly, you know, uh, substance abuse, violence, you know, know, um, and it was... uh, it, you know, he he kind of portrayed his family as a quintessential Appalachian family, and uh, you know, and based upon just really, you might say, more superficial or limited experience. So he really didn't grow. I mean, he grew up maybe what you might call an Appalachian community because there were a lot of Appalachian people migrated up in the you know Ohio, Michigan. Places like that to find work in the factories there, but he didn't truly grow up there. Yeah. And it was kind of like when he was writing his own story; he's writing like, "Look what I've done," and these other people here, these bunch of hell builders hadn't done anything. I mean, right. and and you know, it's kind of like a he's presenting himself, you know, elevating himself, I think, above them, and. Uh, it's, you know it's really you know uh, uh, that kind of story it's not a story of the people really it's not a it's not he doesn't look at uh, you know the the different you know complexity and of, of their lives you know the different and the nuances of their lives he didn't do that you know he just Simpl- Oversimplified it, really, yeah, too.
1: Absolutely. That's yeah. a great way to, to yeah. describe it, an oversimplification in the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. If you folks out there in podcast land would like to get a taste of Hillbilly Odyssey, you can go to redhawkpublications.com, and it is for sale there. We can have it to you in just a couple of days. That's redhawkpublications.com. So uh, we look forward to sending you a copy. You can also get it on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com as well. But uh, we're able to give Dr. Willis a little bit more royalty money if you buy it from us. So <laughs> if you don't want to help Jeff Bezos send uh, more rockets into the air, you can just go on over to RedHawkPublications.com and uh, get it from us. Dr. Willis, your book is also uh, a marvelous history book as well. I mean, uh, not only is your personal memoir and your growing up, your, your memories from growing up, but I learned a lot about the paper business Uh, I love this chapter called The Smell of Money, Chapter 5. And I wanted to ask you this morning, how are things in Canton today after the Evergreen closure announcement
3: uh, back in 2023? Yes, as Patty mentioned, um, well, about a year ago, you know, in uh, March, uh, suddenly Evergreen announced that they were shutting down the mill. You know, they had been making money. They would... I think a lot of the products were sold um, to Starbucks for coffee cups and I think for the, you know, the juice cartons. And and so, you know, they they were doing okay and they they just said we're going to shut it down and consolidate, you know, or make more money in other words. And so it just left the people high and dry. There were 1,100 people working there. and uh, not just in Canton. So a lot of them live, you know, in the surrounding. community. You
1: know,
3: Waynesville, I think. Waynesville, too. even some over in Boone County, you know, oh. community there. So, and it had an impact, you know. And any any industry, you'll, you'll know, you know, about furniture industries. It it, it it expands beyond simply the people working in the plant and drawing a wage. You know, well, first of all, they pay taxes in the local community. Helps the local government. Then uh, the people spend money, you know. The people that work there spend money in the local, and so it supports businesses as well. And so there it is. Now, the now the town had experienced several challenges over the, in, in the in the 21st century. You know, they had two major floods, you know. We had COVID too, and it, you know, every time a flood came in or every time a challenge like that occurred, they just you know they people the community all went together and 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 we rebuilt, rebuilt the town have people clean out their businesses you know people just volunteered you know that in you know, one business they said that you know the day after the flood they looked out and you know, out their door and there were a bunch of people standing out with shovels and rakes to help them mm-hmm. you know clean out the mud and muck and so forth that had gotten into the building so you know they pulled together as a town and, and, and as a community and uh, to you know, help their you know, the fellow, you know, fellow residents. And so it was, uh, you know, and that was, the, in many ways, a history of that. And it wasn't just recently. It was a history of how, you know, people in that community, uh, you know, pulled together when times were hard. If a neighbor uh, was sick and they couldn't, you know, like let's say, bring in their tobacco crop or their you in know, harvest or hay, then a bunch of them would get together and they'd go over there and they'd help them out. And so that was very, I mean, very much um, uh, you know nature of, of the of the people there. And but the mill started, uh, oh gosh, over a hundred years ago. It was built in 1908 by uh, by a. Uh, you know, a business man or manufacturer from Ohio, Peter Thompson, who came down uh, and and looking for a place to uh, grow and harvest pulpwood for his papermaking, and he came upon Canton. And that's you know that's that's you find a lot you know a lot of industries coming in that they come in to take advantage of the natural resources. Uh, in this case, it was. Um, it was spruce trees, and uh, and it was the river uh, there. And it was the biggest natural resource, I think, is it's the people there. You know, these are people, you know, hard working. You know, you grow up on a farm in the mountains, and that's hard work. I mean, you have to work. Uh, you know, all day long you know every day uh, just just to to make it to grow the you know enough to survive and so they were used to working long hours they were used to working hard so the you know he took advantage of that too and that's the nature of a lot of the industries that come in whether it's West Virginia coal mines or it's you know uh, furniture factories textile mills or paper mills it's the same thing, you know, and so we we had what he wanted, and uh, so but he was uh, he was different than a lot of factory owners that come in and you know take advantage of the natural He, he was pretty benevolent, what you might call a benevolent employer. He built a you know YMCA. He had uh, you know he got. Uh, you know, provided good benefits for the employees. Uh, you know, you know, health insurance, life insurance, all that. He paid a really, really good wage. Uh, they said that in in the depression, a lot of people in the area didn't know there was a depression because he kept the mill running so they could work and uh, everything. And when uh, you know, World War Two came along, he, he kept the jobs open, available for. Uh, the employees one of which was my father and so it you know it it was uh, it was a uh, it grew had a tremendous impact on the on the area you know, both good and bad mm-hmm. I mean uh, the downside was the uh, environment you with know, pollution you know it's, it's, it's very paper mills are very polluting industry you know?
1: is that benign or excuse me benevolent leader is that is that like when you mentioned here on page forty-seven and forty-eight mm-hmm. that uh, Champion International had taken the the company over and practiced a more impersonal style of management, mm-hmm. is that what you're talking about? The new the new cutting of the workforce, and because they said that they cut them down from three thousand workers to sixteen hundred and fifty.
3: Yes, that's what happened, and, and it became more a part of a larger corporation. Originally, it was on Peter Thompson, his company, and his son-in-law. Uh, Robertson uh, uh, was his last name he was uh, he, he was really managed it and he's the one that instituted a lot of these policies that uh, you know that was you know was very very uh, positive policies for the worker uh, and so uh, yeah and then when it was sold, to uh, Champion International, which is a, you know, or, or, you know, incorporated in a larger company. And so uh, that's when you know they, they cut back on the workforce. I think there was one period there, they call it Black Friday when yeah. they got a lot of people. And so you know, they reduced it, I think, I'm trying to remember if I'm correct, maybe it was close to 3,000 peaked. Or employees. I mean, that's a lot, you know. When you think about the forty the families and all that stuff, so that was a big. That was a big change. It was.
1: You mentioned in the text uh, uh, two of our favorite writers, the late Fred Chapel, mm-hmm. who was from Canton, and you also mentioned uh, Ron Rash. Mm-hmm you mentioned the novel Serena. Ron Rash has a, one of his first poetry books, is a book of, of the textile industry called Eureka Mill, where his grandfather worked. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain poem in there where they talk about the owners ran bolts of cloth no one was ever going to buy because they knew that kids needed shoes and stomachs needed filling. Mm-hmm. So there was a time in American history where business was uh, did see employees as assets as something to hold on to and something to keep happy, to build those YMCA's, to build those libraries and things like that, to mm-hmm. to 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 help the, the employees. Um, what do you see business like that in being in Canton today? Do you see what do you see Canton turning into uh, in 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 two thousand twenty
3: four? Yeah. Well, it's. I think that I think they're already trying to make that transition. And uh, and that you know they, with the mill shutting down, it's there's a, I guess a positive side to that. And the positive side is the pollution is gone. I mean you know there, there's a, I mean the water still it, and the river still getting cleaned up. I guess you might say. But you don't have the smokestacks. You don't have the smell, uh, which locals call the smell of money, because they, you know, uh-huh. they, they they made made a good wage. But it, it was, uh, you know, they, so now they're trying to focus more upon kind of a tourist kind of, you know, you know bringing in people that uh, may have come to, you know, the area, the Smoky Mountains or Blue Ridge Mountains and so forth. And, and people, you know, may want to take advantage of, of some of the resources there. The, the Pigeon River, uh, you know, a lot of people, even before the mill came there, they, a lot of you know, a lot of pe- local people, they would fish in the river, you know, and trout and stuff like that. And it's still something that could uh, be an industry there and, as well you as- You
1: mentioned the, in the text that the Evergreen doesn't plan to tear down the mill or do anything. They're just gonna leave it. So do you think that there's some opportunity for de-
3: redevelopment to turn that into tourist shopping malls or something like that? I, I, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm sure there is, and you know, I think there, are, you know, those are, those are ideas that people are entertaining there, but at this point, it's still in control of Evergreen, And okay. Until Evergreen decides whether to, you know, sell the mill or, or give it to another you know, town, which I don't think they would, but mm-hmm. uh, but they might, uh, you know, or or some other um, company or whatever. Buy into it to do this thing that you just suggested, and that is, you know, redevelop it, you know, repurpose it into something that you they're know, doing you that.
2: Know, one of the books we did with Rotis. Um I think they took the old, water.
3: redeveloping it, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, the the shell itself is still there, and there's possibilities of um, adaptive reuse. No.
2: And the way they're looking at it, it could be condos and restaurants and uh, indoor recreation. I mean, you
3: never know. You never, no, you never know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. I think it's. I mean, it would be important to have something like that. Either the mill, you know, the ph- physical structure completely gone, or do we, you know, repurpose, repurpose it? It. it could,
2: it could look
1: unique. How many mills have they repurposed around here?
3: Oh, quite a few. I mean, you've got
0: Moretz and um, uh, Holler, Holler and Hickory, yeah. and uh, in Lenore, the Bluebell site was changed into uh, Living Space, so yeah, people yeah. are coming up with good ways to preserve those buildings and that but, sort of thing.
1: as Dr. Willis said, the Evergreen would have to decide what they want to do, because yeah. in his text, he, you, you write that you know they're not going to tear it down, but they're not going to sell it. Right. So that does mean that it's just got to be fallow there. And
2: Eventually they'll make a decision. And yeah. those
1: fallow things have a tendency through entropy to...
0: Hopefully before it falls down. <laughs> yeah. Fall down, you know. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. You were t- as a sociologist, how did that uh, affect the way that you wrote?
3: It did a lot, and you know, I, I throw a little bit of sociology in here, and that's they, what's they, wonderful about the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's a memoir plus.
1: It's
3: educational. Yes, yeah. it is, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. But, no, anyway, no, it, it is. It did uh, impact how I, you know, viewed my life, you know, and everything. Because, of course, after I written, written this, I, you know, I'd, I'd uh, been in. Uh, you know, teaching that area for, you know, 40 years and so forth and was educating that area. So it was, you know, it, I think it did inform how I look back on my life and upon the Appalachian world, mm-hmm. and all that, uh, you know, that, you know, I think helped me anyway to, to better understand what, what went on there.
2: If you wouldn't mind, towards that end, there is a section of the book that I had mentioned. I, I think it's kind of pivotal in terms of you choosing to leave the mountains and go go elsewhere for your education, and eventually leave. But this part that I've kind of pointed out, if you don't mind reading for our readers, I think they'll they'll understand your transition, if you will.
3: Okay. Yes, this is uh, in actually, and I think in the chapter uh, you've come a long way, and uh, that was a quote that some of my friends said to me when they came up here and visited my town, when I drove through the area and they sh- looked at it and said, uh, Willis, you've come a long way, and so well, that's the reason for the title. Anyway, this is a, a, a paragraph from that section. When I left Appalachia to pursue my academic career, I understood how my new world viewed the one I grew up in. It was generally a negative view, and one that made me more aware of my heritage, and a bit embarrassed by it. While the world in many ways helped to define who I am and provided me with many of the values that I carried with me beyond home, I did not really appreciate how much my Appalachian heritage was part of my identity, my sense of self, my soul. I worked to hide my lack of sophistication. It was not just the Appalachian world that I wanted to ignore. It was also my life growing up on a farm and feeling materially deprived. My early years were characterized by lack of indoor plumbing, an outhouse rather than a bathroom, and by living among farm animals, shoveling manure, hoeing corn, and pitching hay. That world defined me as a hayseed, a hick, a rube. I wanted to escape and hide that part of me, to be accepted into my new world. I now recognize the unique and fascinating aspects of Appalachia
2: and its qualities. I just find that to be so universal, you know. Um, I, I'm African American. It's good writing too. Oh well, it's exceptional <laughs> yeah. writing. But you know, you're telling a story of any marginalized community or anybody from a, a strong ethnic background, and their feelings. Like, I'm going to leave home. I'm a small Chinese child brought up in San Francisco what's it like to be outside um, I'm a Hispanic um, my background is different and I'm going outside I'm African American you're telling another story of a, of a group of people that again I never thought of before and you just put it together so well and it's a universal story so thank you mm-hmm.
1: yeah. that, that kind of interstitiality you've got one foot in one culture and one foot in another culture and yet you don't feel like you belong wholly to either one is a common that's a common thing for immigration, a common thing for folks that are that often feel themselves outside of things. And I think it's great how you come to terms with that and also how you acknowledge that, you know, the kindness in you, the work ethic in you, your ability to be patient and never give up are those things you learned in Appalachia, working in the mountains, growing up in the mountains, and you bring those with you, and even though they might call us hicks or rubes or these kind of things, we do bring those positive things with us into these new worlds, and these new worlds and these people we deal with benefit from that, because you just might teach somebody a little bit of patience and a little bit of kindness. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That that would be great today, wouldn't
1: it? That's what we try to do every day.
2: And one other thing I'd like to point out, uh, what's unique about your books, and I think this will be interesting to our listeners also, especially if they're aspiring to write. Your manuscript was submitted maybe two years ago, and initially it got a very kind rejection Mm -hmm. um, because we do have our books go through a beta process. And so we had several readers who read it and they all agreed that they liked the story there was it was a diamond in the rough they wanted to read more but there was there was an element of it that wasn't quite ready and having read their comments and me looking it over i very kindly said we like this we need you to work on this we need you to work on this a little bit more and resubmit it and to your credit my goodness did you do the work on that and we we thank you
1: yeah, wonderful job. Yeah. Wonderful job. A lot of people who, who get those suggestions and those notes, they go away and we never hear from them again. But I, this is an instance that I'm glad that you came back because it's a, it's a
3: marvelous book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I guess it's part of the heritage, too. You don't give up to, easily. <laughs> so you keep working on it. And...
2: and just so that you know I sent it back to those readers and they were like he got it (laughs) so it's like you did the work you know you can't deny that were
1: you going to ask him about that process of what he was doing for for readers out there or writers out there who might find themselves in the same thing what was it that caused you not to get dejected
2: and what did you do who'd you take it to well yeah in fact
3: what did you do Right. Well, you know, uh, when I when I got your re- response, you were you were encouraging, and but you said these are areas that need you need to work on, and you know this is my first book. You know, right? And not just my, you know, it's my first book, not just a first book of this kind, and but I had to, if you look if you work in academia, which y'all do, and you're you do you know and and I you know I had to submit. Stuff it's a you know publish or perish world, and you got you know you had you had to uh, take that feedback and work with it, and you know you did get uh, I mean reviewers in uh, in in these uh, in these journals can be pretty 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 tough, and so you have to be able to willing to accept the criticism. And and work from that criticism, and 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 your criticism was very constructive, you know, that you got you know, got from the readers, and so I took that, and and uh, I said, okay, I you know I, uh, th- this is encouraging to me, and I have some direction what I need to do to make this better, and uh, and and I learned along the way more about writing some you know, a book than I did before. I mean, I was flying blind in many ways, you know. I had this idea of what I wanted to do and the concept of what I wanted to do, which is in a lot of ways reflected in, in that, what, the passage I read. But I just, uh, I didn't know, actually I didn't know how to do it, you know. And I had given it to this friend of mine to read and, and he made some suggestions and I talked with a couple of other people. Uh, there were a couple of people that were writers and, and they made some suggestions to me. And so when I got your feedback, I said, "Well, I need, uh, I need, you know, I think I need some professional help, you might say." And so I contacted, uh, actually, Gold Leaf Literary Services, and they suggested I uh, contact Tom Rash. As and so I did, and I, I sent him the manuscript, and he gave me some feedback, and and um, you know he he had its a lot of books fiction and nonfiction in fact he he, he edited I think he's edited uh, you know Juan rash who is his brother's book and books and uh, everything and so he uh, he gave me some really good suggestions in terms of you know things like syntax uh, you know rephrasing something you know that is uh, that is improved and smoother uh, you know he said, you know, focus on the concrete aspects of you know of it. You know, you, you know, you, you know, you can write better if you do that. You know, get down to In a sense, write also what you know. You know, what you experience, what you feel. And so he, you know, he read that, he gave him feedback. I made those changes, um, and he, and you uh, know, gave it back to him, and he made some more feedback. Now he, I mean he. He's he, he, you know he just very, very uh, he's a very he's he's a tough editor but he's good, and so I feel if I made him happy, I hopefully I'll make y'all happy. <laughs> so, well, it, like I say, when we uh, say, when I had a chance to, re- to reread
2: it and sent it out to the same beta readers, we were like, okay, he nailed it. Um, so, and it, it is interesting. Tom Rash is actually helping another. Of our hopeful authors, I I gave him the kind rejection as well, and I said, "You know what? We like this. Everyone likes it, but not quite ready." And he sought out Tom Rash, and I believe he's going to be helping him as well. So that's good relationship there.
3: Yeah, that's great. That's great recommendation. It is.
1: And I believe what what we what we were fortunate to get out of this this Mm -hmm. this situation was the perfect uh, synthesis of a memoir that educates. Um, but but it's part of the memoir you know instead of instead of it being you know consciously now I'm going to stop here and I'm going to teach you something the, the education is built into the story of this man who grew up as a boy in these towns on these farms in this place but at the same time there's so much good cause and effect sociology there's so much good history uh, that that's what i think you you buy a copy of the book you get all three of those things mm. in this book instead of just somebody talking about their lives and their relatives and this that and the other thing you also get all this extra stuff so it's a it's kind of a genre in and of itself mm. i believe in that synthesis and i and as an academic i love that
2: and i sensed it at a certain point you went through the imposter f- imposter phase of your life you know you Mm -hmm. knew where you came from you had those insecurities but your your degrees were continually uplifting you Uh, and then eventually you end up at unc wilmington Mm -hmm. for the majority of your academic career teaching and guess what now you're back in the mountains Mm -hmm. so that's the next question dr willis can you go home again? And that's mentioned <laughs> towards the end, of course. So I, I am giving that back to you. But at the same time, it's like, what is it now that's different? That you're back, you're older, you've right. got a different uh, lens that you look through.
3: Yeah. Well, you mentioned you can't go home again. Of course, people familiar with uh, mountain riders and should know Thomas Wolfe. You know, that was what he wrote. But yeah, it's uh, you know, you in that sense it's you can't. Yeah, you know, he's right. You can't go home again. In a sense, that you can't go home again and expect everything to be exactly like it was when you grew up here. Things have cha- you, you've changed. I mean, I changed. I was not the same person in many ways when I came back here. Uh, you know, I'd been, you know, over 40 years in a different kind of environment. And then I came back and, and uh, you know, to, and, you know, in a sense, you may expect, well, it's going to be kind of like it was. And it was and it wasn't. You know, I mean, there were a lot of things the same. I think a lot of the values are still here. I think you know, a lot of the you know, the, the cultural aspects are here, the positive aspects are still here. The the, the, the landscape is still beautiful, you know. Fewer farms, more vacation homes. Uh, but still it's there. Um, the, the most the people are basically the same. But you know, the in my t- in, you know, my hometown changed, you know, the you know, the, the mill had downsized by the time I came back and everything, and so it, you know, it's just, um, it, you know, it, uh, you can't go, it, when it says you can't go home again, you can't go home again and expect everything to be like it was when you left. And that's true of any of us, you know. Whether, you know, you're from the Northeast or, you know, or, or out West or whatever, the Midwest. You know, It's, things are gonna change, but, the core, I think, is still there. I think the core of the people and the, and the community.
2: The soul is still, is still there. When I go to Jersey, I, I do get out of Jersey just as quick. But you know what? The soul, <laughs> the soul is still there. The soul. Can't of take the Jersey still out of me. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see,
1: that's Hence the the title of his epilogue: "I am one of you forever."
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's your. You know, no matter what changes on the exterior, the interior remains uh, the same. As that, as that 12-year-old boy that was shoveling manure
3: uh, on the farm. Yeah, so, it went from shoveling manure on the farm to shoveling manure, I guess. In the, the classroom. classroom. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming out. This has been an absolute treasure and joy, and, and appreciate your, your coming down from Alexandria. Well, thank, yep.
3: you. thank you. I enjoyed being here, and thank you for inviting me.
1: And remember, if you want to read this book... Go to redhawkpublications.com, and you can order your own copy. And I'm going to have Dr. Willis sign a few of our stock copies before he leaves. So you just may get an autographed copy if you act now. So uh, go to the website, redhawkpublications.com. Look around on there. You'll find Hillbilly Odyssey. You can search for it, or it's on our new releases, or it's on our uh, uh, memoir page. Uh, Again, thank you for coming to see us. Uh, Is there anything else you want to cover? No,
2: just to let folks know that when you see Red Pub Pod pop up, make sure you like, share, follow, and subscribe. That's all we ask you to do.
1: Yeah, all Just a few things.
2: And And
1: remember, (laughs) not everybody was kung fu fighting. I don't care what the song says. So uh, (laughs) until next time, uh, Red Pub Pod. Red
2: Pub Pod.
3: Red Pub
1: Pod. Yay! Y'all take care, and please come hear us again.
0: This has been Red Pub Pod.
2: Red Pub Pod.
0: A podcast. Red Pub Pod. From Red Hot Publications.
2: Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Pod. (laughs)